Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Survive and Thrive, a podcast that brings you stories and perspectives on how in changing times, leaders and organizations can not only transform to survive, but also thrive. I'm your host, Jennifer Ayers. This season, our third season, we want to help our listeners learn how to positively influence the change they want to see in their organization, how to minimize disruption, and even normalize the concept that change is constant. Today, I'd like to take it up a notch and explore how an individual business owner has survived and thrived in change, but also I'd like to talk about how the industry as a whole that this individual tends to be in for his business is surviving and thriving. What can this industry be doing to survive and thrive and change? So what do I mean by this? Well, earlier this year, I purchased my first new car in a long time. I've been a fan of buying used cars for many, many years. But this year, after adopting our third rescue dog, my husband and I decided it was time for a van. And she's a beauty. She's a 2021 Chrysler Pacifica, and I love her. I never thought I would be a van gal, but I have to admit, I love it. I also want to acknowledge and admit to folks that I didn't really know a whole lot about the automotive industry. I did do an internship many years ago in the industry, but it's been a long time since I've really paid attention to what's been going on. After my purchase, I started to get curious about what it was like in the automotive space during this pandemic, and I started thinking about the disruption in general over the years. So my curiosity has led me to my guest today, Ryan Girardi. Ryan is an expert at the cross-section of the automotive industry and navigating disruption. I'll let Ryan say a little bit about his background, but for some context, Ryan is a seasoned marketing technology professional dedicated to being a steward to innovators, influencers, and thought leaders in the mobility tech and connectivity space, which includes automotive, auto tech, and auto retail. So who better to talk to than Ryan? Ryan, let's hear a little background about yourself. Great to be here with you. Thank you for having me. You know, I heard you say mobility tech and connectivity, which is kind of the name of my podcast. The, the official name is Auto Converse. It's all one word. And there's a history behind that, that name, Auto Converse. But I use the term mobility tech and connectivity. It's, it's kind of long and clunky, but it, if you notice, it kind of rolls. The tag phrase is how we're connected and the way we get around. What's great about that is it allows me to focus on something as traditional as automobiles, buying a car, owning a car, getting into that business, because that's where a lot of my relationships are rooted is in the automotive industry. But, you know, over the last several years, we've had companies, I'll use Uber as a great example, Uber and Lyft. They're not automotive companies, they're tech companies, but they're mobility companies. They're helping you get around. So what happened in the auto industry is it kind of, you had new mobility and shared mobility, right? You have vehicle connectivity, you have smart cars, autonomous driving, you know, Tesla, what's Tesla? Are they, a, are they a tech company? Are they a car manufacturer? Are they an energy company? Like, you know, they're in all these different kind of spaces. So what happened was automotive really evolved. It went from just making cars and logistics of getting them to market and then, you know, the retail distribution. We have these fringe spaces now. 
through the mobility tech and connectivity, it allows me to really focus on much broader aspects of how we're connected and the way we get around and still remain, you know, not abandoning, let's say, the industry or particularly auto retail. In talking about Ryan's background and the disruptions he has witnessed both before and now during the pandemic, the auto retail industry has really been through a lot. I should say auto tech and auto retail. Ryan talks about what were some of the true disruptions to the automotive industry and how the market has changed. Disruption is is a word, and you have to understand the context of the word. So I think that's a starting point when we talk about disruption is what's the context of disruption. The, The car business itself has been relatively the same for, say, 80 years. And the only thing that really disrupted that was the advent of the World Wide Web. Uh, if you go back to, you know, 95 was, was technically when the, the web became a thing. And so very quickly, that started to impact the, the business model of automotive. The internet just disrupted everything we know about retail and about everything. Um, so that was the first disruption the automotive industry really did experience and probably like I said, what I say, eight, you know, 80 years. Okay, so now we're, what, 20 plus years into that disruption. What the internet brought to the auto industry was transparency. So if you think about before the internet, you would look in newspapers or car papers, right? Remember the Auto Trader magazine as an example? And what would, you'd look at cars, you'd see prices. And then what, what did you do? You could call some dealers, you could go around and visit some, take up a lot of time. And you'd get some different prices and you'd get some education and then you made a decision. Well, what the internet did is it took the mask down or the veil, if you will. It just it made everything transparent. And so dealers initially, they hated, we call them internet shoppers. They hated internet shoppers because they knew too much. They knew too much about the <laughs> cost of cars. I love it. <laughs> and I laugh now because people's, you wouldn't say an internet shopper anymore. But that was a term we had. <laughs> Dealers built internet departments and they had teams of people that were usually it was one guy. You know, like if I worked in a dealership in the early 2000s, I'd be the internet guy, the internet sales guy. In the early 2000s, getting your cars online was a newer thing for dealers. Shopping for cars online was a new thing for customers, for consumers. And all the industry really did was created a digital way to do the same thing. And that was generate leads for car dealers. And so you have companies like autotrader.com, cars.com, autobytel.com, if you know some of these. And their business model was they would take dealers' ad dollars, advertise their cars, but they'd get the traffic, and then they'd sell the dealer the lead. So the dealer had to pay to get their cars listed by these guys and then pay to get the leads versus just doing it on their own. That's kind of what the internet did to the auto industry. And as the late 2010s, when you get into like 2015, vendors, tech companies in the automotive space started introducing technology. We call them widgets. And the term became digital retailing. And the whole idea of digital retailing was put the process in the customer's hands and give them the ability to do the... Because what do you have to do when you buy a car? You just bought one, right? You said a Chrysler Pacifica. So let me start by asking this. Did you finance it or did you pay cash? We financed it. Okay. Which most people do. Very few people just straight up pay cash for cars. So 
you had to get approval and you had to make some some decisions. You had some choices right. about your financing, right? Yep. Did you do that in the dealer's office or did you do it online? Uh, we did it in the dealer's office. Right. So digital retailing is aiming to eliminate that part of the process, to put it in your hands technologically. Using my own car shopping experience, Ryan and I will chat a little bit about the industry, how it's changed and where it's going. So with that said, buckle up. If you've bought a new or used car recently, you know that it can be overwhelming. There's so much information out there nowadays. And Ryan and I talk about the internet and its impact that has changed the car buying experience in general. Before you bought the car, is that what you had your sight set on? You're like, I want a Pacifica or you just, I want a minivan. My husband is the one who did most of the research online and narrowed it down to that particular make and model. Like he did all of his online research on make, model, features, what the price range should be. He's the car guy. So I just was happy to have something that I could use to get my dogs around very easily. (laughs) Everyone's in a different place. You don't buy a car, but every three to five years, it's not like you're constantly thinking of your local car dealer. It's a great point. I can say that when we went into the dealership, my husband knew more than the salesman on the floor about the car, the specific make and models that we were looking at in terms of the the various selections and features and and whatnot. It was kind of interesting. Like he he asked questions for clarification and the sales rep was like, I don't know. <laughs> I have to go check. There's your modern internet shopper, right? They're too informed. Okay. So you guys went through the selection process. You, then he drilled down and found the dealer. And then you probably went and did some test drives. And like you said, you did the financing in the dealer's office and then from the time you went to the dealership till you walked out with your car, we're we talking three hours, two hours? I think so. Yeah, it was probably about three hours. While my husband and I purchased our car during COVID, Ryan explains what the industry looked like before the pandemic threw everything out the window. The three to five years leading up to COVID, you had a lot of pressure coming from the vendors, the, the technology companies in the industry, pressuring dealers to adapt digital retail technology on their website to put more of the shopping experience in their hands. And in theory, that sounds great. But in reality, the car process, the transactional process is a complex process. It's not like you go to Amazon and hit one click buy now or add to my cart. There's so many questions and things to consider. So you had all this pressure to dealers to adapt to that technology. While that was going on, you had this this startup tech company called Carvana come into the mix. And Carvana, what do they say? Why waste your time with a with a dealer who's rude and doesn't care and is inefficient? And right, they kind of made this whole dealer experience look bad, where you can just go to our website, pick a car, and it'll have it delivered to you. And that's what we call the Amazon effect. Prior to COVID, you had all this rhetoric and pressure and debate, if you will, about should car dealers strive to be more like Amazon? Should we put more of the process in the customer's hands? I would say statistically, you've heard of the Pareto principle, the 80-20 rule. I would say statistically that fewer than 20% of car dealers prior to COVID, fewer than 20% had incorporated digital retailing technology, had introduced vehicle delivery, 
you know, seven day money back guarantees, you know, very few dealers had been doing these things. And then boom, you guys shut down your operations and you can't sell cars. Then the pandemic hit and it forced the automotive industry, just like every other industry, to pivot in order to survive. The business had to pivot as well. From the period of March 10th through like May, those two months there, March, April, May, two, three months, it was chaos because it was state by state. It was city by city. You could sell cars. You couldn't. You could only have so many people in your store. In Colorado, the Department of Motor Vehicles shut down because of the pandemic. And so dealers couldn't get cars titled. They couldn't get a car titled. They could sell it, but they couldn't get it titled. The DMV had no digital process. In order for a dealership to stay alive, they had to immediately adapt to a whole new way of doing business because of COVID. So that was a, that was like disruption simmering and simmering and simmering. And then it was like, kaboom, like adapt or die. And that's where the auto industry has been for the last year and a half. I love how clear Ryan painted the picture of the car business before and after the pandemic hit. For an industry that remained relatively unchanged until the onset of the internet, it suddenly had to adapt at an unprecedented rate. It was like a volcanic eruption, which it was for everybody, but for car dealers, it was like, it was adapt or die very fast. Speaking of sink or swim... Ryan recently facilitated a panel for car gurus called Getting Ahead Tips for Adapting to Disruption in Auto Retail. Sounds very relevant, not to just our conversation today, but for the last two years. After being part of that discussion, what were some of the key takeaways that can allow the auto industry to thrive in the future? Because I do a lot of podcasting, you know, interviews and panel discussions, I always separate conversation you know, you have uh, fact-based conversation, you have speculative conversation, right? And theoretical conversation, like where are things going? And I find in the car business, the more, it's very easy to get carried away with what could be, you know, kind of the unknown, but that doesn't do anybody any good after a certain point. It's, it's really what, what really matters. For car dealers right now, just like Every business is affected by the the supply chain issues and the chip shortage. That chip shortage has lingered. You drive by a car dealer today, you don't see full lots. You know, your average local car dealer has two or 300 new cars on the lot and usually on the low end, 30 to 50 used cars and sometimes up to 100 or more, just a single local car dealer. Now you go by and their new car inventory is reduced to probably 10 to 15%. Yeah, we were lucky. We bought in January, literally like January 3rd or something. And we like just made it under the <laughs> the massive supply shortages. So if you take supply demand, we all know supply demand, right? So what happened is supply just went drastically down overnight. But demand didn't. Believe it or not, during the pandemic, demand stayed just where it was. People still needed cars and were buying cars. I'm surprised by that. I think a lot of people were surprised. There's even speculation that demand kind of went up because people were not spending as much money. They were getting checks from the government and suddenly people had more money that they didn't, that they weren't using. So demand not only stayed steady, but went up. But the problem is you couldn't buy new cars. 
that made the demand for used cars go through the roof. And right now today, used car prices as a whole in the United States are upwards to 40% higher than they were a year ago. 40% higher. So that Pacifica you bought, well, you bought a new car, so you, you obviously lost a lot of value right away. But I have a friend who has a car that they still are like six or seven grand on, and it appraises for 11 or 12 right now. Oh, we're getting ready to sell an old BMW used car and it's great. And I'm like, good, good time. Let's sell this. If you don't need to replace it with another driver, you can just sell it. You should sell that ASAP. (laughs) Now is the time. (laughs) Hey, listeners, I'm I'm selling a 325 2001 BMW. Let me know if you want to buy it. It's in great condition. Okay. Sorry. All jokes aside, the industry went through this boom in demand for cars especially used cars, as new cars couldn't be manufactured. So what happened? And where's the industry heading? So just going back to the takeaways, that's the elephant in the room, is the shortage, the supply, and the imbalance of car prices and demand, right? That's the big takeaway that no one can ignore. Now, there happened to be another panel that day that was going to focus on that. So we didn't really get deep into that. But that is definitely one takeaway in the retail business is, is supply and demand, car prices. And what does that do? It makes the demand for car dealers to get used cars go up too. So your car that you have, dealers want that car and they're going to bid and pay top dollar to get it because it's hard to get good cars right now. The other main takeaway, you know, I mentioned the Amazon effect with Carvana and Vroom. The industry has to look at, at those disruptive companies and say, what can we do to remain competitive with these disruptors? And that's things like the online shopping experience needs to be very robust and efficient for the customer who's probably going to get confused along the way. So that's a big aspect of it. One other aspect was the in-store experience. That's actually a differentiator that Carvana and Room, they don't offer an in-store experience. Your local dealer can offer you that. And We know that not everybody wants to just go to a website, put a car in a shopping cart and move on. You want some sort of trustworthy, you know, ally on your side to help you with that process. And that's going to be around for a few. So improving that in-store experience was huge. And then the other thing to finish off the question is you're probably not seeing this as a consumer, but there is major consolidation of automotive dealerships uh, nationwide. So we think of Big Box America, right? Home Depot knocks out the local hardware store as an example. There were, remember the recession in 2008, at the time, there were about 22,000 franchise car dealerships in the US, right? So they, they saw Ford, a Honda, a Toyota, whatever, about 22,000. Post-recession, that went down to a, under 18. So that's about a 4,000 out of, that's about a, what, a 15% reduction. It's estimated that by 2030 or 2035, somewhere around there, there will be more like 15,000 franchise dealerships in the country, but they're going to be owned by about 9,000 entities. So like Berkshire Hathaway, right? Yeah. Yeah. Is buying up dealerships and consolidating groups. You probably know AutoNation. Yep. I mean, the big players you have like AutoNation, Lithia. DCH, Sonic would be one, uh, Mile. These groups have like 50, 60, sometimes over 100. That's going to continue. 
is these local dealerships are going to get gobbled up by the big guys and belong to corporate entities. That's happening very fast right now. As those big company dealers gobble up small dealerships, I can't help but wonder what might be lost in that change. Customer service can be a big impacted area on a business, and sometimes those local dealerships understand their audience better than a chain. Circling back to the disruption in the industry, I want to hear how Ryan's thoughts on what seems like the latest and greatest technology, self-driving cars, will continue to change things. So there's five levels of autonomy, and they're literally called level one, two, three, four, and five. If you think about, well, you probably have some autonomous features in your Pacifica. I don't know what they are, but you might have things like lane assist, helps you keep you in your lane. Some cars, if you're nearing a collision, will break for you or the seat will vibrate and, and kind of, hey, you need to slow down. Those are you know level one, level two autonomous features. Level five would be fully autonomous. Those don't exist on the roads yet. I don't expect them to not real soon. Level five, we're getting there. There's push for it, but I think you're going to see mostly level three and four are, are relatively common. Tesla are pretty much a four. So that's real. To me, it is about safety. Jumping off that, while approximately 40,000 people are killed in the U.S. every year due to car accidents, an additional 4.4 million are seriously injured enough to require medical attention. You know, most accidents are human error. We make errors. We don't know how much that'll reduce, but as far as I'm concerned, any reduction's a win. So in that sense, autonomous vehicles, they, they do, they are safer, even though there's still mistakes, right? Autono you know, level three, level four cars still can get into accidents, can still hit pedestrians because you know, they're just machines doing the same thing we are is evaluating what we're seeing. The difference between a machine and a human, we only have one processor. Whenever someone says, I'm a good multitasker, it just means that, that they don't go crazy trying to do too many things at once. But the reality is we can only look at one thing at a time and process what we see and it processes. So if you apply that to driving, you ever watch someone drive? It's like we're constantly, constantly, constantly. Well, a computer has multiple eyes and multiple processors. So it can take in a massive amount more information, process it, and make better decisions more quickly than we can. So autonomous vehicles will, over time, reduce accidents, deaths, and injuries in cars. How much, we don't know, but I think it'll be pretty significant. Sometimes change is necessary. It forces improvement. I know for myself... I've loved using Ubers, and I'm very happy with the automated features that my new Chrysler has. So out of this change, perhaps there are even more great opportunities ahead that can allow the industry to keep up and really thrive. Well, one thing about the auto industry is it survives and it thrives. It's, it, there's a lot of money, a lot of profit, a lot of history, a lot of infrastructure. The advent of electric cars doesn't change a whole lot from a manufacturing standpoint. It just changes the heart of the car from an engine to a battery is really what that does. But outside of that, everything's the same. You've got four wheels on the ground, got a steering wheel, and you move in a direction and you, you stop and you go. So as we look to the future, what will owning a car look like? Will it become obsolete? 
Will driving go out of fashion? The industry is like a bellwether. As the dollar goes, so does sales, right? So there's a big pulse on sales. What you're going to see happening in front of your eyes is you're going to see the uniqueness of vehicles go away. So you bought a Chrysler Pacifica because of a variety of factors that influence that. And I think what you're going to see is that the brand itself and the individual attachment to a car is going to get less and less. Uber and Lyft have demonstrated that, like you just said. It's really cool. Just hit a button, get in the car and go. You still want to get in a nice car. You're still having an experience, but you don't own the car. The pandemic completely through a tidal wave at Rideshare. And there is question now. I mean, that was a form of disruption coming into automotive, which was no one's going to own cars anymore because everyone's going to do rideshare. And you had, you know, kind of industry veterans that would get out and say, people want to own a car. <laughs> like that's not going away. I love driving. Yeah, driving and, and owning. The reality is your car spends more time not driving than it spends driving, right? And so the case for not owning a car financially, economically can be stated, but we use our cars, even when we're not driving them, we use them, we store stuff in them. You know, they're, they're, they're useful. Are you living in your car again, Yeah, I'm living in my car. <laughs> That's Business why I have a green has been screen. hard this year. But it is kind of expected a couple of things that are going to happen. Driving itself will become more and more novel or I don't know, novels might not be the right, right word, but being the actual driver of the automobile will become less and less as an everyday public consumer. We'll see more autonomy. You'll be the supervisor of the car. You know, Rideshare has a lot of practical purposes. I think once we kind of get the whole pandemic uh, whirlwind more and more behind us, I think we'll see Rideshare. But you're going to see vehicle ownership change in the sense of we're less attached to the less differences between individual cars. That's that's definitely going to change. The autonomy is going to take driving away from us. Driving might be a thing where it's more of like a um, recreational, right? Like you go to the bar to throw axes and play darts, right? Right now you go to a racetrack because you want a high performance race experience. But I think you're going to see more variety of, hey, come to the come to the auto club and you know, drive our city track or drive our all-terrain track because you're going to see ownership go down. But I mean, we're talking 10, 15 years kind of outlook. If you're looking for more immediate idea of where cars are going. Hey, whatever. I think autonomy, like I said, you're going to see more and more uh, autonomous features, make the road safer and bring some of the demand, the requirements off the driver. I love cross-country driving. I actually long for the, the day where I'll, I'll still be in the driver's seat, but I can maybe have a movie on, maybe turn and talk to my kids or whoever's in the car, you know, maybe take some notes, be a little bit more distracted and feeling like the autonomy of the vehicle's got, you know, is still safer. I'll still need to be there. I think that'll be a nice, that'll be a nice transition for us all when it comes to driving. I'm so happy I had Ryan on to give an overview of the industry I didn't really know much about. I loved hearing about how things evolved and changed even before the pandemic began. Before we wrap up, I want to ask Ryan how he, as a business owner in this pandemic time, has been able to survive and thrive through all of this disruption. 
you know, looking back to when the pandemic hit, which is what a year and a half ago now, I was just coming into that kind of riding high on a nice surf wave. I had implemented some new products for the business. I had gotten, you know, lots of new clients on these products. And you know how it is when you launch new products, you kind of have to work with them and react to them to tweak them for each individual client. So I had just a ton of amazing momentum going in, but I had a long-term play and that was to introduce uh, a membership programs into my business model uh, that you're now becoming familiar with. The ideas behind those were you know, a good year and a half to two years in the makings, but I hadn't actually rolled them out to test, the, test out these ideas. When the pandemic hit, and you know, I, I do a lot of virtual programming, right? Like live shows, live streaming and, and whatnot. What I noticed was, because everyone got sent home and they didn't have to go to office. And so everybody had more flexibility and more downtime. And for the first two or three months, the demand for what I was doing went way up and I couldn't even keep up with it. I had all these people wanting to get on my shows. and It was like they finally had the time and the flexibility to do it. So I quickly started rolling out my membership programs in response to that. Meanwhile, all the new business I had brought on, they all left. I think I lost probably 75% of my business in about five weeks. So it was like the whole nine months of getting all that business, it just, it all evaporated. And, and it was understandable. You know, everyone was freaking out and dealers stopped spending money, which meant the companies that were my clients stopped you know, they, they couldn't be on my program. So I rolled out these membership programs and the pandemic gave me that, that push. It forced me to adapt. And, I, and luckily I had some ideas, you know, to put into motion. So I put them in motion very quickly. And that has actually catapulted my business into a whole new direction that I didn't see coming two years ago. And so, yeah, it's, it has changed my business a lot. And I'm still navigating through that. And uh, it's been fascinating. It's been challenging. But what are you going to do? You just sit there and you know scratch your head? No, you got to do something. Great. Well, it's been awesome to talk to you. And I enjoy your podcast. And for our listeners, maybe just let them know how can they get a hold of you if they want to learn more about... I mean, you offer a lot of services that even go beyond just your savviness in the automotive industry. So maybe give a brief soundbite on on that and how to get a hold of you and where you can find your podcast and, and then we'll wrap it up. Sure. Well, um, because I'm in automotive and the name of my company is Auto Conversion, all one word, people in automotive see those as synonymous, auto and automotive. When I launched the podcast, we ended up calling it auto-converse. Well, that created a lot more confusion for people at auto-conversion and auto-converse. So that took some time to work out, but we've kind of settled out what they are. Auto-conversion is a media and public relations as a service platform. It's autoconversion.net is where you go. And uh, there's only two programs available through that site. And there's our basic, what we call uh, AC Pro uh, license. And that allows people like yourself that you know that you're familiar with to come up onto our shows. We have multiple shows that we host live and you can, you can grab a seat, you can be interviewed, you can, it's a strategy. It's not just, hey, show up and talk. It's a, it's, a, it's a campaign and we reserve these seats to build campaigns and those are the recording sessions. 
And what our basic membership offers is the ability to book yourself at least once a month. You have access to the recording so you can post-produce your own content with the show. And then we have premium programs where we actually post-produce content like you're familiar with. We'll actually make post-production content for our members depending on the plan that they're on. If you go to autoconversion.net, it's not for automotive. It's for businesses. It's for business leaders, business owners, entrepreneurs that want to have a professional you know, online presence, what I call your media and your public relations strategy. And we just help people accomplish that in an extremely cost-effective way. When you do the stuff in-house, you know the expense. You have to outsource, you have to hire, you have to put your time and energy into it. We're just able to alleviate and make it more streamlined and more efficient and reduce the cost to get a similar result that you would get on your own. And that's the real benefit there. And if you want to check out me personally, just just go to a search engine and uh, just search Ryan Girardi, G-E-R-A-R-D-I, and uh, you will have days worth of information to uh, evaluate. (laughs) And just so our listeners remember... You are Ryan Gerardi, like the Ferrari, as I like to say. <laughs> Gerardi, like the Ferrari. <laughs> Thank you, Ryan. For all of our listeners, I get to benefit from the programs that you offer. They're extremely helpful. So I will include all of those links in our show notes so that people know how to quickly find you. And I am very appreciative that you took the time to meet with me today. So Me as well. Thank you for having me. You do a great job. And uh, it's kind of cool being here on the on the the behind the scenes doing the production with you, but you do great work. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you everyone for listening today and joining our episode of Survive and Thrive podcast. Remember at Consinity, we empower the conscious leader to realize positive and sustainable change. Until next time, don't just survive, thrive. Take care.